Last week, we talked about a couple individual reformers. Do you remember who the first was? There were what I called the pre-runners. Do you remember those two gentlemen? Anybody? Anybody? Who were, one was Wycliffe. Yes, thank you. We got, we got one answer. And Wycliffe was known for a couple of things. What was his, probably his most famous, um, what do I want to say, theme? You can cheat. You can cheat. Get your old notes out. Wycliffe was really a, a dominant force in doing one thing. What did he translate? Math books? Yeah, the Bible. From what to what? Latin. Yes. Why is that important? Nobody reads Latin. Nobody reads Latin. But it becomes one of the foundational pieces for a couple of the reformers that we're going to hit today. Very good. Thank you. Who was the second then? Huss. What was his claim to fame? A little less known, but Christ, not the Pope. That was his thing. I love he called the Pope, he, he called it um, one of my favorite words of all of last week, priestcraft. Remember this? Um, no man ought to interpret the Bible or be, be told, in, you know, he should have access to the Bible, he should have access to the scriptures, it's, it's, a, it's the ultimate authority. Uh, of course, Wycliffe believed the same, Huss took it a bit further. Um, so those two were critical Pre-runners, right? Who did we have after that? Who did we talk about the primary reformer? He's famous for doing a, uh, a written work and then posting it in a famous location on a famous day. Who is this? Yeah, Martin Luther. What did he do? What's he, what, he started the Reformation officially. Historians. 95 Theses. Posted it on the door where, remember? Wittenberg, Germany. Um, as a response, if you'll remember, as a response to a, a papal institute of indulgences. Um, there is a famous saying that went, and I'm forgetting his name right now, shame on me, I should know this. Eck, Eck, came through on a fundraising campaign essentially for the Pope, his his little jingle, do you remember it? I have it in your notes last week. <clears throat> when the coin jingles, I'm sorry, or when the, it's like something to the effect the coin jingles, the soul springs. In other words, put money into the coffers and hear that jingle and your, your soul is set free for... for uh, for your contribution. Pretty heretical, pretty scary. Um, so we had those two, plus Luther, and then this morning, Lord willing, if I can finish all of this, we're gonna hit the Anabaptists. Um, our area of the country have, uh, have some roots here. Um, actually, all Protestantism does, and I'm gonna make a really clear case for that. And then after that, we're gonna hit a little bit of Zwingli, and we're gonna hit a lot of Calvin. Um, I firmly believe the Reformation is best studied and remembered by studying individuals, um, not necessarily times and dates and stuff like that. 
a lot going on. Guys, I wish I had more time. I wanted to kind of connect Calvin to, uh, to the Puritans. Um, and one of my favorite historical works is a biblical work. It's by a godly man named John Fox. I've talked about him before. I'm going to read a little bit from him. Um, his, his book, The Book of Martyrs, um, is arguably the dominant work uh, of all Puritans. And it, and it spread at this time period in the early, I should say the mid-1500s, um, like wildfire. We're going to read a couple excerpts from, from him. <clears throat> Well, a lot to do. I'm going to really go fast. Um, but there's going to be a lot of really, uh, in, in this time period, there's, there's, a lot, there's so much going on. Um, there, there's so many moving parts. So if there's something more that you would like, um, I'll just tell you, I whittled this down to four pages. I, I was up late last night. Just, inter- just this time period just interests me so much uh, and just kept reading. So if there's more um, on any particular individual or more on any particular event or something like that, you know, let me know. Email me or text me. Um, you know, I'm, I'm open to, to hitting it again. We won't next week. I, I actually, last week I told you incorrectly that this week was going to be Jack Kurtz. It's not. It's next week. Um, this week is me again. I'm sorry, but the the week after next, I'll be uh, I'll be finishing up. The plan is to combine uh, the age of science and reason, or reason and revival, um, with more of the postmodern age. So I'll combine those two next week. Um, but again, if we want to if we want to draw this out more, we certainly can. Let's go back to to the Reformation here. I want to read the top part here. This was a, an attempt to summarize or define the age of Reformation. It answered four critical questions, and the Reformers were not merely religious activists. They were not merely political activists. Um, in fact, they weren't. They were, um, they were true, um, what do I want to say, pioneers in getting back to apostolic Christianity. And that, that's what is important here. The spirit of reform broke out with surprising intensity in the 16th century, giving birth to Protestantism and shattering the papal leadership in Western Christendom. If you remember the previous age, the, the goal there was uh, you know, by the Pope and those who would have supported him to have a Christian empire. Um, there was still the dream of what was the Byzantine Empire and then what was the Roman Empire to follow. Um, and, and so the Pope carrying out that um, got a little confused with God's will and his own, putting it lightly. Four major traditions marked early Protestantism, Lutheranism, Reformed churches or Reformed theology, Anabaptists we're going to talk a lot about this morning, and then the Anglicans, which we're going to talk about this morning as well. After a generation of the Church of Rome itself, led by the Jesuits, recovered its moral fervor. Bloody struggles between Catholics and Protestants followed, and Europe was ravaged by war before it came obvious that Western Christendom Christendom was permanently divided. And a few pioneers pointed toward a new way, the denominational concept of the church. The Church of Popes no longer hurls vehement curses at Protestants, and Lutherans no longer burn Catholic books, but the divisions of Christians and Western Christianity remain. Behind today's differences between Catholics and Protestants lie the events of the age of Luther, a period of church history we call the Reformation. 
um, where I kind of stopped short at the end of Calvin, of course, a famous person in the year 1492 sailed the ocean blue. Who's this? Christopher Columbus, we actually get into exploration and overlaps the Reformation, which is really, really important. Rod has mentioned this. I'd encourage further reading on this um, if, because there, there is a very stark difference in the Christianity and why Christianity was brought to Latin America and why essentially Spanish-speaking Latin America is Catholic and Portuguese-speaking Latin America is Catholic and why is the Caribbean and North America primarily Protestant? It's very much tied to this age. Um, and and, this, and it's, it actually is tied to this age. That's another day. What is Protestantism, though? What is it? Let's define it. Ernst Trelch, who is a Christian, theolo- or a Christian historian in the early 20th century, defined it as modification of Catholicism, which is very good. This is the best definition there is. Um, much of what is currently Protestantism or sits under that umbrella is not very dissimilar to Catholicism. Um, For instance, the English church, the Church of England, Anglicanism. Um, It was intended to be exactly exactly doctrinally like Catholicism, except one major difference. The Pope wasn't the head of the church. The King of England is the head of the church. So that is an example. But four questions. This is what drove the Reformation. I want to, I want to, this, if you don't get anything from last week and this week, get this. Okay, take this home. Press save in the memory bank on these four things. Number one, how is a person saved? That is gospel-centered. That is the gospel. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I came to you as of first importance to share what? The gospel, the gospel, that's critical, all right? That's critical in understanding this age. Number two, where does religious authority lie? Is it with earthly authority? Is it with the pope? Is it with the king? Is it with the government? Where does it lie? It's a bit of, 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 this was the most convoluted question that, but did get answered. What is the church? We really see that to start to be defined with, um, with Wycliffe. We really start to see it happening there. And then it bleeds into Luther and others. What is the essence of Christian living? In other words, does it involve pilgrimages? Does it involve um, public confessions? Does it involve absolution with the Pope? Or is it a walk with Christ? Is it my shoot my fruits ought to bear out my salvation or is it my fruits cause my salvation my works cause my salvation we had to answer that in this time period and it was answered so let's talk about a few of the traditions we've already talked about lutheranism all right the main difference there was luther preached one primary message which was people are saved by what what alone faith alone the the verse that he hung his ministry on and that propelled him into the reformation was romans 117 um the anabaptists we're going to talk about these guys let's jump here primary leaders were conrad grable and felix mainz also ulrich swingley i put much more in here about swingley he's the one we all know about um 
He was great at first and then not so great. 1484 is when he was born. 1534 is when he died. The term Anabaptist was pinned on them by their enemies. This was not a kind um, acronym or a kind um, moniker. That's what I want. This was not a kind name. Maybe that's more simple. It meant rebaptizer. We still sit here, many of us, many of us who came from traditions, including myself, where infant baptism was seen as regenerative, okay, this is the people who initially and, and vehemently spoke out against regenerative or infant baptism. Now, in this church, this is a great opportunity for me to tie to our doctrinal stance, which is baptism for the what? Believer. We would stand on scripture and say that you are not of the age of accountability. I'm not aware of my sin, right? I cannot explain away all men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I can't explain that as a three-day-old human being, can I? I cannot understand what and how to come to faith through a saving faith and knowledge to Christ as an infant, can I? And I don't recall, even more importantly, even one infant in Scripture being baptized. Does anybody here recall that? Don't put your hand up. Okay? So it's very critical. It's very important. Here is where we get believer's baptism. It meant rebaptizer which meant those who at this first generation of the Reformation under the Anabaptist leadership who would have been baptized as an infant came to faith realizing, well, man, I wasn't a believer when I was sprinkled by the Pope or by the bishop or by the priest. And so they were consequently rebaptized. That's where we get the name. Actually, the Anabaptists rejected the idea of rebaptism. I want to explain this because they never considered the first baptism ceremonial or any more than ceremonial. They, they never considered it as scriptural. They never considered it as, um, as biblical. The move, the, the move, the movement, I should say, moved uh, famously. It spread so fast, um, even quicker than Lutheranism. Today, the direct descendants of the Anabaptists are the Mennonites and Hutterites. Um, we know some of these folks. The direct descendants of the old Mennonites are the old Amish order. These are the no zippers, no buttons, you know, buggies, um, no automobiles. But interestingly enough, they still consume the same amount of energy you and I do pretty much. Regardless of the type of dress or mode of transportation, many of the beliefs of the Anabaptists are accepted by Christians today. Distant relatives of the Anabaptists include Baptists, Quakers, and Congregationalists. I cannot stress this enough. If there is a group of reformers of the four major ones that have really changed over the centuries, it is this group. Uh, very few of them, if any, really even resemble the original Anabaptists. Um, there's, and, uh, and you'll see why. Okay, you'll see why. I want to make this case very clear for you this morning. However, some massive, important, massively important biblical truths that were rediscovered according to the apostolic age and, you know, the age of Christ, these guys brought to the forefront for Calvin and other followers. The primary objective to their life, according to their convictions, to Scripture. 
In other words, they wanted to walk in a manner worthy. That was the ultimate goal for the Anabaptists. Get back to scriptural living. We ought to look like what scripture, scriptural New Testament church looked like. Their goal was restitution, reinstitute apostolic Christianity and return to the churches of the true believers. They studied vehemently the epistles. They had most success setting up communities in Switzerland, especially Zurich. Zurich was often called like the, kind of like the modern Jerusalem. Like it was the, at that time period, it was the, um, it was the refuge of, of reformers. You could put it that way. <clears throat> um, there were others. Here's what really, this event right here really split the Anabaptists. So I want to I talk about this. Conflict between Grebel and Mainz and Zwingli erupted, though, in the fall of 15, 1524, when Grebel's wife gave birth to a son. Now, all of a sudden, the rubber meets the road, right? We are preaching in a tumultuous time, preaching and teaching that we don't believe in infant baptism, so what's she going to do? What will good old the Grebel family do? They decided to not baptize their son. And they fled to a nearby village of Zurich called Zolikon. That's quite a name. It sounds more like a, like a video game planet, I think. <clears throat> anyway, Grable and Mainz moved their followers to the nearby village of Zolikon, establishing the first church free of state ties. That is critical. Where you sit here this morning is free of state ties. And a lot of the mentality that brought pilgrims and brought religious, um, what do I want to say, Reli the people who wanted to flee religious persecution, in particular in England, uh, came here with, the, with this idea. This is where they get it. Authorities, though, at the time, you might have already guessed this, saw this as an act of rebellion. March 1st, I'm sorry, March 7th, 1526, the Zurich Council, which was literally just nothing more than a bunch of political magistrates who ran the city, um, decided that anyone found rebaptizing would be put to death by drowning. You see the irony there? I, I mean, we chuckle here, but literally thousands were drowned. The idea was, if the heretics want water, then let's give them water. During the Reformation years, an estimated four to 5,000 Anabaptists were executed by fire, water, or sword. A letter written by a young mother, and I want to draw this out again, guys. We do not live under anything even close to this type of persecution. Not even close. What they were, what they were reforming and what they were or, uh, protesting was direct heresy, mandated infant baptism, mandated confession to a pope. Like, these are heretical and, and non-biblical ideas that needed to be reformed, okay? Go ahead. It was, I mean, it was like death. I mean, it was. I mean, it was one of the things we don't agree with other churches. Yep. They, I mean, that's what you're saying. It is. You got it. This letter captures that. Let's, let's read this. He's absolutely right, guys. It was, it was deadly is what it was. 
If you were a follower of biblical Christianity at this time, you likely might have been thrown in jail, drowned, burned at the stake, or beheaded. I, I, this, this letter right here stirs me, okay, in, in what is important, which is train your kids up in the way they ought to go, right, Proverbs? Listen to this letter. My dearest child, the true love of God strengthen you in virtue. You are yet so young, and whom I must leave in this wicked, evil, and perverse world. She's writing this from jail in Antwerp, by the way, Antwerp, a city in Belgium. Be not ashamed of us. Her husband had already been taken, by the way. He'd already been uh, jailed and then executed. So she's the survivor yet here in jail. And she writes here, be not ashamed of us. It is the way which the prophets and apostles went. Your dear father demonstrated with his blood that it is the genuine faith. And I also hope to attest the same with my blood. Though flesh and blood must remain on the posts and the stake, well knowing that we shall meet hereafter. Write that letter to your kids. I mean, that, that, is, that is not just stirring. What a devout mother and father. I'm sitting in jail. My kids are roaming around out there knowing my death is imminent. And what does she write about? Daughter, continue to follow Christ. The persecution forced many of the Anabaptists north to Moravia and consolidated leadership under a guy named Jakob Huter. Where do we get this group? The Hutterites, right? They're still around. They're, they're dif- different form. They're not, I don't know if they're all called Hutterites anymore. The next one, another settlement about the same time period was um, led just west, west of there in the lower Rhine by a man named Menno Simons. Menno Simons, 1496 to 1561, it was established and commanded pacifism. And here's where we get the Mennonites, named after Menno Simons. The Anabaptists across Europe had adapted four main convictions in the highly significant document, the Schlitham Confession. What did it say? It said these things. Number one, discipleship, the doctrine of discipleship. The Christian's walk with Christ must involve a daily walk with God in which Christ's teachings and examples attract uh, exemplifies a shape transformed style of life. What they meant here, which was revolutionary, is I can't just live however I want between um, Sunday and Friday and then show up at a mass on Saturday and have public confession, take the sacrament, and then go back living ungodly lives. It must be a daily walk. I, you, you, we say this often in here, right? How do you know I'm saved? By my what? By my fruits, by my walk. How does he live? Um, one, of the, one of the Puritans wrote, I want to say it's Watson or someone. I don't want to think about this for a second because I want to get it right. Um, it, it's essentially, I'm not saved by my works, but you know my salvation by my works. They work together, right? They work together. Love. They acted as pacifists toward non-Baptists, non-Anabaptists. This was important. Um, If you were not a part of the medieval or the Reformed Catholic Church, you were an enemy. If you were not a part or or in some circles of other Protestant uh, 
denominations, you, you were an enemy. If you'll remember, Luther goes wayward toward the end of his life when Lutheranism becomes a part of the state. And I don't remember the king, um, king's name um, off topic here. It's in my notes of last week. But they go wayward because, yes, we're going to allow religious freedom, except that the religion had to be Lutheranism. Do you remember this? And so now, all of a sudden, the, you, you really saw an end to the spread of Lutheranism. For, uh, thirdly, congregational rule. Here's where we differ. Here's where we part from the Anabaptists. Luther and Zwingli swung the opposite extreme, and you could see why. Okay, you could totally see why. When you're under an oppressive, tyrannical leader, the Pope, or his cardinals, or his bishops, and it's in its extreme rule, what I say goes, what I say and the scriptures say goes, you would see a swing elsewhere, wouldn't you? I mean, can you understand it? I, I can. I can understand why they go to congregational rule. I don't want one ungodly man, the Pope, telling me what or what not the scriptures say. So they, they extremely go the opposite direction of papal leadership and institute a decision-making process that relied on the entire membership in deciding matters of doctrine, authority, scripture, and church discipline. The problem with that is it's not scriptural. Scripture is clear in Timothy and Titus and other places that, and Acts that the church is to appoint men capable of leading, right? Deacons and elders is where we get those offices. Congregational rule is not scriptural. And then another one, which is not, but we'll bear this out a little bit more too, is just a separation of church and state. They claim to be a free, unforced, uncompelled people. They believe that faith is a free gift of God, true, and civil authorities that exceed their competence when they, uh, when they champion the word of God with a fist. Yes, true. But they argued that the church is distinct from society even if society claims to be Christian. I'm pretty sure that Paul writes that in order to be free from sin or free from the devices of this world, you'd actually have to leave what? You'd have to actually leave the world. It's where we kind of get the concept to be in the world, but not of the world. First John and other places remind us all the time, love not what? The world. Okay, however, are we subject to things in the world? Yes, we are. Romans 13 is very clear. Uh, Peter is very clear. So they get this wrong in some ways, okay, in some ways. <clears throat> Over the centuries, the descendants of Anabaptists lost many of the characteristics of their founders. In their search for a pure church, they often became legalistic. We see this today with, their, uh, you know, with the, um, the Amish. Um, I'm not sure that zippers and buttons have anything to do with my salvation, um, but yet they're a meritorious act. You know, me driving a, a horse-drawn buggy, I would love to do that. Um, but I don't see that in, in Scripture, and I, I don't see that being tied anywhere to our salvation. They argued that the church is distinct from society, and so they lived it out. Now we kind of in search for, I'm sorry, uh, and they became legal, legalistic now. In their interests of sheer survival, they lost their evangelist, even, evangelistic zeal, and they became known as simply excellent farmers, good people, and literally, they were described by Calvin and others as just being quiet in the land. And that's really what they are now. 
Um, if you go across Iowa, I grew up um, not far in a, uh, from a pretty large Amish settlement in Vesper and Marshfield, Wisconsin. And you saw, you know, occasionally on our way to church, we'd see a buggy on their way to church as well. Great for them, except I think um, the legalistic mentality leads to a lot of problems. Go ahead, Raj. On that, uh, the quiet in the land, uh, they picked that up. Catherine the Great had him come down to be great farmers. Yep. When she died and they got a whole new regime, but she told them, keep your religion to yourself. Yep. See, that's a problem. Yep. Because where do you find that inscription? You can't find that. Instead of being evangelists, right. even in the land, and they refused to do that, they, well, we'll just do the good farming. You know what I mean? And we'll just do what you want us to do. And that quiet in the land, then when they came over here, it still persisted. Right. Because it was a cultural thing, and it already was in it. It, it became a cultural thing instead of a biblical thing. Yes. And you hit, I didn't hit that. Easy to do. Yep. Oh, for sure. Yep. Cultural Christianity is rampant, guys. Um, I'm always leery of American missionaries, quite honestly. Um, one is not our own fault, but when a, a well-to-do, wealthy American goes to Central Africa and starts to witness to, you know, these destitute, poor, you know, poverty-stricken people, are they attracted more to the Americanization or are they attracted more to the Christianity? We have to be distinct. We have to be clear in our, you know, in our, in our mission. Um, very clear. It's what we did when we, uh, when we bombed uh, 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 Japan. You know, they looked at us as, well, we want to be wealthy. We never gave them the You know what I mean? We, we, we gave them that. <laughs> now, let's be clear here, though. For instance, the Anabaptists, their very first, their, their very first conviction was discipleship. But they steered from it. So if, if our first conviction remains discipleship, if it, if it remains as a first importance, share the gospel, preach to teach the gospel, awesome. Do that. You're right. Do that all day, 24-7. But if it becomes something else, if it becomes farming, if it becomes health, wealth, whatever it is, now we, we go wayward. Now we're something else. Let's talk about Calvin. Um, Calvin was a scholar. So if there was an extreme opposite in upbringing to Luther, it's Calvin. Okay, even just how they looked. Like Luther, as he got older, uh, lost his health and, and became rounder um, to, the point of, to, to the point of extreme unhealth. And Calvin became the opposite. Um, worked himself to the bone, quite literally, where he was, uh, uh, his eyes bulged and his cheek bulged. And I mean, he's complete, complete opposite. But anyways, you don't care about that. Um, a scholar and a lawyer and a brilliant writer, Calvin. If you've read any of Calvin, man, good luck, but um, what a writer. Came from a small town just northwest of Paris. He was French. Uh, focused his reform on the sovereignty of God. His message was 
absolute sovereignty. He was thrust into the Reformation by a fellow reformer, William Farrell. Please, not Will Farrell, not the Hollywood Will Farrell, okay? This is, this is not him. Um, completely different. I just totally ruined your perception now of Calvin. But anyways, Will, William Farrell, another Frenchman who was preaching in Geneva at the time when Calvin was on a visit. Farrell made it a point to call upon the visitor to join the cause. He had already heard and, and was, you know, Calvin was repute already with being an academic, with being a, a, a scholar, a, uh, a wise fellow. And Calvin protested, though, he, he uh, or, I'm sorry, when Calvin protested, Farrell exclaimed, you are only following your own wishes. If you do not help us in the work of the Lord, the Lord will punish you for seeking your own interest rather than his. Uh, rather than his. Wow. There's a guilt trip. But it worked. Um, Calvin was ter- terrified. He literally that day said, okay. Calvin's organizing and, and executive abilities enabled him to build on the work of Zwingli. I did not talk much about Ulrich Zwingli. Um, he's an important reformer, but really uh, Calvin, uh, Calvin relied and built upon the work of Zwingli a lot. The reform movement started and Zurich moved rapidly across Switzerland and Germany. By the 1540s, Geneva had emerged as the international center for a reformed Christianity under Calvin's disciplined hand. When I studied this, the best analogy that I could say is it was the Heinz 57 of Christianity. Um, There was a bit of this, a bit of that. Um, I found out who that one uh, wacko guy who called himself King David and tried to set up his own millennial kingdom in Germany. Remember I talked about his name was Matisse. So in my studies this week, I I found that guy. Um, He brought back polygamy. He brought back all kinds of stuff from the Old Testament and then tried to set up a New Testament concept, the the kingdom, whatever. Anyways, um, thankfully it failed. Not that it had any chance to begin with. Um, but anyways, let's talk about Calvin some more. Calvin received his Master of Arts in 1528 from the University of Paris. Uh, he later turned to study law at the University of Orléans and Bourges. After his father's death in 1531, he felt free to pursue his own interests and returned to Paris to study the classics. The classics are what? Just so you know this. What are the classics? Who are the classics? Plato. Good. Who else? Socrates, good, who else? The father of classicism, Aristotle, right? So he goes back and he studies these, how interesting. How interesting. Because these are as ungodly works, as as profane works as there could be. And yet we see Calvin come about how he comes about. With the reforming ideas that were circulating, thankfully, Calvin's in the right place at the right time, and he turns to a new direction that he called his unexpected conversion. He gave up his study of the classics, thank goodness, and identified with the Protestant cause in France. He was eventually forced to take refuge in Basel. I love the Swiss towns, Bern, Basel, Zurich, Geneva, just good, fun names to say anyways. Um... Anyway, so 1536, and he published his highly influential work, The Institutes of Christian Religion. I've read some of this, um, hard reading, 
But I will tell you that there is no more important reformed work than this right there. I would encourage you even just to pick it up. Um, you can find just scripts of it. But if you wanted one example of how we do church, um, here you go. There's, you recognize an awful lot in here. Anyways, his work became the clearest, most logical, most readable exposition of Protestant doctrine that the Reformation had even produced and gave Calvin fame overnight. Calvin was also a famous, he wrote a famous letter to the king of France defending Protestantism. We can learn a lot from this letter. I like this. His letter was respectful in its tone. It wasn't combative. Um, It used, it was, it was full of scripture um, and it worked for a moment. Anyway, he wrote a letter to the king and he asked for a hearing. He asked for a hearing to vindicate the rights of other Protestants. Because what wasn't working was rebellion. And it just brought more persecution. And what wasn't working was guerrilla warfare tactics, which was, guys, that was what was happening. And, and so Calvin, in his wisdom, thought, I'm going to write a letter. And it was, <clears throat> and it was effective. Now, although in a short time here, though, no one had spoken so effectively on the the behalf of Protestants, but as a result, he had to flee back to, um, or uh, had to flee France. After leaving France, and I think from here he went to Strasbourg, but anyways, he, he left and he spent about three years in Geneva. After a struggle with authorities regarding who had the power to excommunicate, In other words, was it the Pope, was it the magistrates, was it the town leader, was it the king? Um, Calvin was defeated. He was defeated. And then he had to flee to Strasbourg. That's what it was. 1538, he fled to Strasbourg. The time he spent here was another three years, but it was the happiest of his life. In Strasbourg, he was able to kind of live ordinary life. Uh, He married a widow with two children. He remained happily married until her death in 1549. But not long after her death, he returned to Geneva to help the Protestant cause. During this time, Calvin studied, he preached, and he taught, especially on the doctrine of God's sovereignty. Calvin wrote this. He wrote, God asserts his position or his possession of omnipotence and claims our acknowledgement of this attribute. In other words, I am God, I am who I say I am, and you need to acknowledge it. God is the governor of all things. Calvin also saw the doctrine of election as taught by Paul, Augustine, and others as a source of religious devotion. Not just merely, um, you know, we say now a nod to God. But because I'm elect, because of my love for God, because of his grace toward me, now I want to live a life of love toward God, a Colossians 3.23 guy. More than a problem of the mind, Calvin considered divine election to eternal life the deepest source of confidence, humility, and moral power. With that, and and you see this in his writings, because I'm chosen, because I'm one of the elect, he saw this as my salvation is also eternally secure. If an eternal God chooses me, draws me to himself, which we see in Ephesians, we see in Romans, we see it all kinds of places, right? If he draws me to himself, why would he ever let me go? Right? Look at John. Uh, and I, this get me off, off track. But, right, I, the Father, you know, believers are in the hand of the God, not, uh, in the hand of the Father, not ever to be let go. And so he saw the election as a 
comforting as, a hum, as, a, as a, an act of humility of God toward man, and so do I. Calvin believed that there were three tests. He wrote about this extensively. And, I, and just forgive me here, Bob, especially, and others who love Calvin. This is so watered down, guys. This is, this is so watered down. I mean, his institute on Christian religion or on the Christian church is, is extensive. It's massive. This is just a tiny little sampler. First of all, he says, participation in the two sacraments should remain in the church, and they still remain today. What are they? Baptism and what? The Lord's Supper. Do we still do those? Yes. Where do we do those? In the church. It's an it's a act of the church. It belongs to the church. He says also an institution or a, a yardstick is, is living an upright moral life. Um, he uses a ton of scripture in his writings about this, but essentially, if, you're, if you call yourself a believer, act like a believer. Bear out your faith. Walk out your faith. Thirdly, he said public profession of faith. What is baptism? A public profession of faith. And so he felt like the Christian life should be lived in a public manner. You know what? I, this is something that in, in, I think back into my own you know, early life, my immature Christian life. Um, I was very, very good at compartmentalizing my faith. You know, at work, I was just a worker. You know, and in church, I was a, a churchman until I really saw other godly men who I respected really living out their faith at work and really living out their faith in their family. Um, and man, what an encouragement. That was a big test for Calvin. That was a big test for Calvin. Calvin also taught a special view on the state. Now, I want to touch on this <clears throat> lightly. No man, whether the Pope or king, has any claim to absolute power. Why? Come on. Who gives authority? God. We see it in Daniel. We see it in the Gospels. Uh, my favorite example of this, the, and the most clear example of this, is when Christ is before Pilate and before, um, and, and before the, uh, I'm just forgetting now his name, Caiaphas. Thank you. Caiaphas. Um, and he's going through six illegal trials. And my favorite was in John. Remember it last week? I got to read it in our, in our scripture reading in here. And he's asked the pointed question, are you the king of Jews? Are you who you say you are? And he says what? He says yes, right? I am who you say I am. And he says then by my authority then, I have to you know, give you to, your, you to the Jews, right? Get, like carry out their sentence. And he says the best thing. You have no authority except what? That which is given to you, granted to you. The Lord right then and there could have been like, you go to the cross. Instead, he carries out his punishment. Um, much to our benefit, right? Anyways, so Calvin um, realizes this. Calvin never preached the right to revolution. In all his writings, it's clear. He never preached this. But he did assert that the church is not subject to secular governments except in secular matters. Pay your taxes. Subject. Right? Obey the speed limit. Subject. Okay? Um, don't murder. Subject. 
But in terms of how church should be run, that is left to the church. That is left to the, the authority, which is what? The head of the church and scripture, right? So that's where he parts. Now, a lot of other things resulted. In France, Calvinism spurned into the Huguenots. You remember these guys in your history class, probably, to seize the leadership of France, right? Thousands of them stormed the castle. You, you know this story. It's Les Mis, Les Miserables. Um, actually, that's French Revolution. Forgive me. That's, I'm thinking of a different one here. But anyways, um, they storm the castle. What happens? They are ruthlessly massacred, almost every single one of them, on St. Bar- Bartholomew's Day in 1572. Netherlands. Calvinism, here's my, here's my relatives. Calvinism offered a rallying point for opposition to the ruthless rule of Catholic Spain. If you remember, Spain at this time ruled over what are now the Benelux countries, Belgium, Netherlands, and Luxembourg. That area along the North Sea, just south of, I know you know your geography, so I'll stop. Okay, they, they, Spain rules over this, and William the Silent, the guy who, uh, I'm sorry, uh, the guy who kind of quietly led the, the Dutch rebellion and, and helped them liberate from Spain, their national anthem still today is the prince, or it's the song of the prince which was written for William and his followers. Scotland, I I love this history, Um, a land ruled by another monarch, of course, the monarch of of England, right? Um, Led by John Knox, was a staunch Calvinist, led Reformation against Mary, the Queen of Scots, dubbed Bloody Mary. She decided to rid her land of what she called Protestant heresy and was responsible for many Protestant deaths across England during her rule. Who were these people? Come on, you know this. Who were the group of people that she persecuted primarily? What? The pilgrims, who were a group of the pure, starts with a P, ends with Puritans, Puritans. Awesome, good job. Okay, many of them who we love to read and get a lot of our, um, what do I want to say, church heritage from um, are those guys. Direct descendants of Calvin. The Anglican Church. Let's talk about this. I love this one. This is maybe my favorite to talk about. I'm going to really fly. If I go to 1002 or 1003, will you guys be okay? Thank you. I heard one yes. The Anglican Church. Okay, the Anglican Church. Lutheran Reformation began in a monastic cell. I want you to see the difference here. This is just fun. Okay, it begins in a punishing cell. Luther, literally, a penitent man, punishes his own body, does weird stuff to himself. That's where that began. The Anabaptist reform literally began in a prayer meeting. Began in a prayer meeting. Calvinistic reform began at his own scholarly desk, in his own studies at his university. The English Reformation begins in the affairs of the state, specifically with the problem of succession. King Henry VIII, you ever hear of that guy? Oh, yes. Changed nothing doctrinally. He simply opposed the authority of Rome. Dickens, Charles Dickens, some of us were punished in high school having to read that guy. (coughs) Hard times. Um, Others, I'm drawing a blank right now. 
He describes Henry VIII as a most intolerable ruffian and a blot of blood and grease on the history of England. There's, that would be fun to be described that way. Henry VIII passionately desired a lady named Anne Boleyn, just one of his many mistresses. Um, she was, uh, he wrote poetry about her. He, I mean, he, he really, really loved Anne, not his own wife. The facts that surrounded the succession to the English throne that our Henry had to satisfy his lust. It's nothing more than that. It's, it's not. He had several mistresses and at least one illegitimate son that we know about. His problem was that he had no son born to his queen, Catherine of Aragon. Now listen to this poor gal. Catherine, and by the way, her, it's only because of, of her relationship to Spain, her nephew happened to be the king of Spain, that, um, that Anglicanism didn't spread farther. And you'll see this here. We, we could be in a much different spot here in the United States because we are, um, we are primarily people who came from what area of the world? England. Okay, and it could have turned out very different if this had turned out very different. So watch this. Catherine, daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain, famous, famous kings and queens right here, had delivered five children, but that wasn't good enough for good old Henry VIII. Only survivor beyond infancy was the princess Mary, another famous woman, Unfortunately, England would not accept a female ruler because of the nation's previous queen had caused bloody wars of succession. She was not a good woman. In 1527, Henry, sorry for the E there, that's supposed to be Henry without the E before the Y, asked the Holy Father, Clement VII, to revoke his marriage to Catherine, but was denied, and here's why, because Clement was afraid to upset Catherine's nephew, Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor of King of Spain, who was the dominant force in the world at that time. What nation? By far, Spain. There's a reason that in 1492, Portuguese Columbus, right, he's, Port, he's Portuguese, he's not, he's not Spanish, but he goes to the Spanish uh, king and queen and asks for permission and money to go do what? Go to the Americas. Why did he go to Spain? They're the dominant power. They had money. A lot because of their indulgences. A lot. Anyways... Henry decides to take matters into his own hands, Henry VIII, and he secretly married Anne Boleyn and on just in a random whim in January of 1533. Well, well-written, documented event. It was attended only by some private people. Um, anyway, in May, an English court declared Henry's marriage to Catherine null and void, and then in September, a new queen gave birth to, guess what? A daughter. Wasn't going to work out for this guy. But arguably the most famous queen of England in all of English history, Queen Elizabeth. You heard of her? She brings in the Elizabethan period, right? Anyways, the Pope countered by excommunicating Henry VIII. What else would he do? And Henry knew the Pope had to be overthrown. He discovered an old 14th century law prohibiting dealings with foreign powers and used it to insist that the English clergy stop their dealings with the Pope. The clergy offered surprisingly little resistance. And here's what happens. In 1534, the Act of Supremacy, notice that, Act of Supremacy, who's declaring to be supreme over whom here? 
The king is declaring to be supreme over whom? The Pope. Over Clement VII. The king's majesty, he writes this. The king's majesty justly and rightly and is ought to be and shall be reputed the only supreme head in earth of the church of England called Anglicana Ecclesia. The Latin Anglican church. Only two series Serious changes happen, though. I love how God works. Guys, hang with me here. You'll love this. Okay, you'll love this. Suppression of monasteries. They needed to be gotten rid of anyway. The next thing. Publication of what? The English Bible. For you swear. In churches. Henry VIII, of all people, decides, let's get the Bible translated from Latin and German into English. Wow. God has a sense of humor. The pioneer in the translation of English Bible was one of my favorite reformers, William Tyndale. Have you read this guy? I, I hope you have. I, I'll just say this really quickly. If several years back, Amy and I got to go to a Sunday night church at Countryside Bible Church uh, in, uh, in South Lake, Texas. And a guy, I don't remember his name, he was a businessman from Seattle, came and he had a collection of Bibles. And one of the Bibles he brought and he let people page through and touch it, and, and some of them were on display, was a John Rogers Bible. And he is one of my favorite church heroes, and I'll, I'll get to him in a second. It was so cool. Um, some of these Bibles literally had blood on them from escaping tyrannical rule. Uh, it was amazing. Anyways, it's made a huge impression on me. So what happens here? Tyndale, the pioneer of the English translation, after receiving this ordination, he once expressed his frank amazement and ignorance with the clergy. So, for instance, there's still clergymen that are, that are allied to the Pope, okay? They don't think Henry VIII should have done what he did. And so, they meet, so Tyndale meets fierce resistance in doing this. Love this quote. He says, Tyndale says, when a fellow priest resented this, or resented this observation, Tyndale replies here, Madly, he replies this. He says, if God spares my life before many years pass, I will make it possible for a boy behind a plow to know more scripture than you do to the priest. Oh, I love that. <clears throat> Tyndale, he goes on and he says here, he, or he goes on, he translates portions of the Old Testament. He got basically all the law done. And then he brought out an improved edition of the New Testament from German. Then the church officials continued to bound him. They took him to prison. He fell into their hands in 1536, and after 17 months of prison, Tyndale went to his death at the stake. His dying prayer was, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England on the stake. Others wanted to carry on efforts to finish the translation of, of English. Miles Coverdale, our Coverdale Bibles, you know these, right? There's still even a publication called Coverdale, or uh, sorry, a publishing company. Um, published the tra complete translation of the Bible, the version that Tyndale's work was supplemented by Latin and German versions. A year after Tyndale's death, the Matthew Bible appears. Famous Bible in church history. Another English reformer, John Rogers, set forth his translation without his name attached. He thought he might be able to escape, right? Doesn't. Rogers' edition was virtually a well-edited compilation of Tyndale and Coverdale's work. Tyndale's dying prayer was answered in, at least in part when Henry VIII authorized this Bible and he bought and read throughout the realm. It was bought and read throughout the realm. Where we get ours today is in large part traced back to those three guys. 
I won't do it. I brought it, but I wanted to read to you. Go get this on your own. Okay, I think I, I, Amy got this for me several years back. Um, I'm almost done cover to cover. But the, all of these people, all of them, from Calvin to Luther to Zwingli to uh, Tyndale, to, they're all written about and described carefully by John Fox, who was a Puritan writer. Most of this book, original letters, most of it written in this time period, 1540s, 50s, and 60s. I, I would encourage you to read it and get it. Read about the torture of some of these, literally some of these reformers' wives were taken to jail. One of them famously pregnant, I don't remember which one who, her stomach with the unborn child cut open, the baby taken out, tried to keep the baby alive, the mother ex uh, killed, and then the father imprisoned and eventually burned at the stake one at a time. Just awful, atrocious things that happened to these people. Why? So that we can have the English translation sitting in our laps right now. What an amazing heritage on which we stand. Um, I can't stress it enough. Anyways, can I close this in prayer and then, and then we'll, we'll shut her down. Our God and our Father, I just thank you so much for in your providence and your protection, you've raised up men and women throughout the age to preserve, to, to carry on the preservation of your ultimate work, your letter written to mankind, the only inspired letter of the scriptures, the Bible that we have in our laps today. May we never take it for granted. Help us to share the gospel bravery as they did. Help us to learn it intently as they did. And uh, help us to also treasure it as they did. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. <clears throat>